Welcome to Spooky Psychology with Megan and Lauren. Hello and welcome back to Spooky Psychology with Megan and Lauren. I am Megan. And of course I am Lauren. And we are so glad that you're here. Hi, how are you guys doing? It's been a minute. <laughs> it has been a minute. Thank you all for being so patient with our uh, recording schedule. Yes, we are, we're We're going to explain some things later on, but yeah. not in this moment. So if you're someone who like, sk- ends right after we stop talking about the topic, you're going to want to listen all the way to the end of this one. We're going to explain some things. We're so. going to spill some tea. Stay tuned. The tea is being spilled today. And it very is exciting. hot. It is. It's very exciting. So, um, so yeah, so we are going to actually get into a topic that was a listener request. Um, mm-hmm. So we're going to just give a quick shout out to Emily. She is in Tennessee, but originally from the Midwest. We really enjoyed your email and... We're so happy that we <laughs> can bring our nasally A's to you. <laughs> yes, uh, we are so excited. I Lauren screenshotted your email and sent it to me, and I immediately had to tell my husband about it because he's always talking about accents and how with his siblings, like his accent shifts all the time, and mine does too. So I was like, we gave someone their Midwestern accent back. Like, that's so exciting to me. So, so glad you're back with us with our Midwestern accent. We're glad to have you. Yes. And she gave so many just good ideas. And I don't know, this was this was a hot topic. So we're excited to talk about it. Um, another person we wanted to give a shout out is um, Miss Austin, our newest patron. Hey, Austin. Thank you so much for, you know, just supporting the podcast. It does really help. Um, and we appreciate you. So if you have any requests of something mm-hmm. that you want to hear, Austin, you just let us know. Yeah, we uh, will definitely do that. And thank you so much. I'm kind of impressed when we're getting new patrons right now, just because we're only doing one episode a month, and I did I not really expect that to happen, but we really appreciate it. Thank you so much. You're wonderful. This goes to helping us pay for things that we need for this podcast, yeah. so thank and you. It's, it's it's just bizarre, because I'm like, oh, well, we're not recording, people stop listening. Like, I don't know why I think that, but... They do not. Uh, our... Honestly, our um, number of downloads has, like, barely dipped. We are getting a lot of new fans and somehow don't even understand how this happened because, again, we are releasing less episodes, but we went from being in the top 5% of podcasts in the world all the way up to top 3%. So we're somehow, I don't know what you guys are doing, but keep doing it. It, Please. It's random. Did you, like, all get together and start decide to tell all your friends about this podcast? I'm not sure, but we're exploding, and it's wonderful. So thank you guys who are listening and being patient with us and telling your friends, family, coworkers, mail delivery persons to listen to Spooky Psychology with Megan and Lauren. It's very nice. We love it's it. super nice. We love you guys. So thank you guys for being awesome. Were there any other shout-outs we needed to give anybody? Oh yeah, there's there's actually um, I think a couple people. So one was 
Melanie. Um, I'm not sure where she's from, um, but she brought up a really good uh, topic idea, which is discussing um, mental health stigma of sex workers. And I, I think that would be a really good one for us to cover one of these days. That is a great topic. We're going to add that to the list. Yes, because it is a huge problem. I'm so mm -hmm. happy you brought it up. Yeah. Um, another person who wrote in... What was her name? Why can't I see this? Okay. Bryn from Washington State. She wrote us a really sweet message. Um, and, you know, she was just a really person to connect with so thank you for your sweet message thank um, you and yeah you know we love when you guys reach out and we, we will always respond yeah it may take us a while sometimes depending on what we're doing but we do always respond we'll always get there we'll always respond to you <laughs> so yeah so why don't we get into the show so what is the topic for today megan Today we are going to be talking about feral children, and my gosh, my research, I really thought that I knew a lot about this, and then I dug deep and found out some stuff that was horrifically left out by my psychology professors in the discussion of feral children. Um, I mean, so same, until we talked this morning. It's <laughs> like, wait... Right, and also what I found out, doesn't it make a lot more sense than what we thought about feral children? Like, it really connects a few things. So I'm just going to warn you guys, uh, this gets real depressing real fast. Yeah, so like, trigger warnings um, about bad things happening to children, obviously. Uh -huh. um, and the abuse of cognitively disabled children. Yes, more specifically. <laughs> More specifically, going to throw that in there because that is a, uh, particularly for, you know, people who have worked with the population or have loved ones with cognitive disabilities, this one is going to get rough. Um, it's interesting because it's another one of our topics where people think they know about it and it's like, oh, it's so like spooky and mysterious. And then you learn more and it's like, well, now I'm just sad. Right. This sad. doesn't seem fair. <laughs> um, but I mean, and the other part that's like really sucky. So like, this is still a problem like to this day, mm -hmm. and it might not be in the way that you think it is. Um, so an example that I wanted to give, and I won't say where I heard this from, who I heard this from, or give any identifying information about the person. Um, but in Illinois, there are facilities where if you are removed from your home by DCFS and they are not able to place you with a foster family or with other family members like an aunt, uncle, grandma, grandpa, whatever, um, you will become, I think the term is ward of the state. Yes. Um, and so I knew someone who had worked at one of these facilities and there was a feral child there. And what I was told is that this child... Um, their parents were um, dog fighters, so they used to hoard dogs and keep them in kennels, and for whatever reason, they decided to put their toddler in the kennels with the dogs. So, needless to say, they did not develop any sort of social skills, and um, 
I want to say developed some sort of disease because it was it was like disgusting like mm-hmm. you know a hoarding situation and um essentially because of that you know they would bark and they would bite and they would be really aggressive and you know just mm-hmm. like all of these things and you know obviously um that's more of like a modern story than like the typical like Mowgli like jungle book sort of story but these are the kind of things that happen unfortunately um and and yeah like the part that was like sad too is I was like okay well obviously I know about this thing that really happened very close to us um maybe I can find the news article about it um if it's like public knowledge the problem is I found many news articles about many situations like that. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, it's like in 2020, you know? Yeah, I think the thing is, the more you dig deep into this, the less this is about heartwarming stories of animals rescuing children and a lot more about uh, just horrific abuse oftentimes in children who are already disabled at the start of the abuse, which is most likely a contributing factor in said abuse. And then these things happen. I even, I found one in 2008 about a um, child in Russia who was being raised as a bird. His mom had hundreds of pet birds. I read that too. I was trying to get more information about it, but like there wasn't a lot. I mean, the thing is, there probably is lots of information about it. However, since I cannot read Russian, that really limits the sources that we can use. How dare you? I know. That is the thing is a lot of the stuff, especially if it's news articles, we're just not going to be able to read a bunch of the sources because they're typically going to be news articles from the country, which are oftentimes not going to be in English if they're not a largely English speaking country. So... That one I couldn't, I found like one article that mentioned it, which was interesting, but I couldn't find much more information. But yeah, that was, that was a sad, weird story. Kind of like a mm-hmm. hoarding situation too. Yeah, animal hoarding, um, regular hoarding and the involvement of children can lead to some very interesting outcomes. So, Lauren, would you like to start off... By giving us the definition of feral children. Sure. So I pulled this definition off of the Encyclopedia Britannica. So according to them, feral children, also called wild children. Um, So children who, through either accident or deliberate isolation, have grown up with limited human contact. Such children have often been seen as inhabiting a boundary zone between human and animal existence. For this reason, the mode, the motive of child reared by animals is a recurring theme in myth. So again, Jungle Book. Mm-hmm. In the modern era, feral children have been seen as providing a window for scientific study of fundamental human traits such as language use. Um, and it, I've read in a few different places that it's kind of like referred to in psychology as like the forbidden like study um, it just like how twin studies kind of are, where mm-hmm. where they get like broken up, and then you can see, ooh, nature, nurture, like you know, whatever. Yeah. It's kind of the same thing, where it's like you cannot like conduct this study with children, but when it's there, you can learn a lot from it. 
And, believe it or not, once again we're going to be, or I specifically, am going to be talking a bit about unethical psychological experiments. Because, man, the ethics of experimenting on these kids when they do come up, naturally, it's not as clear-cut. It, there's a reason why it's the forbidden study, right? Obviously, in the States, you're not allowed to raise children in isolation to see what happens. We have safeguards for that. But some of the methodology of studies being done is also very clearly not okay. Um, so there's that. We're going to just dive into the unethical psychological studies of the 70s yet again. As we man, do, we just it, dip our toe in just to remind you how bad it really was. It just keeps going. It's like every episode, we're like, we're not going there. And then we find stuff and it's like, here we are again. Um, so there's a couple different types of feral children I found in an article that was kind of classifying it. So there's the stereotypical children raised with animals, right? This idea that we have, like, kids in the forest being raised with wolves. Wolves come up a lot. Um, like, wolves or monkeys seem to be the ones that you hear the most. There's children in isolation, where the children are living on their own through some situation, but they're not being raised with animals. And then there's confined children, which are the children that are concretely abused and purposefully confined by their caretakers. Yep. Those are all equally horrifying. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so just to kind of get into the history a bit. Um, so before the 17th century, there were only kind of scattered and fragmented stories of feral wild children um, that started to appear in European history. But during the 1600s, several accounts started to emerge. So there were descriptions of a wolf boy in Germany and uh, children abducted by bears in Poland. And in 1644, the first story um, appeared in English of John Liege, or Liege a boy um, lost by his parents in the woods who took on animal-like behaviors to survive on his own for years. Um, so that's like one of the first big stories. Um, early descriptions of such children tended to detail their non-human qualities. So for example, running on all fours, foraging and hunting for food, exceptional hearing, and absence of language. Um, but the most widely known feral child of the early 18th century was a boy found near Hanover in 1725. So he was known as Peter the Wild Boy, um, and there's a physician named John Arbuthnot, <laughs> if mm. I say his name, uh, who named him. Um, and he became fascinated um, by, well, the English royalty were fascinated by him. In the next few years, both King George I and the Prince of Wales um, really took interest to him. Mm -hmm. Like earlier children found in the wilderness, Peter... Um, had an unbreakable silence and a unique ability to survive much as an animal would. Um, and this compelled the scientists to address this animal-human divide at the time. Mm -hmm. um, in 1972, 
translation of Liniao's natural systems was uh, translated into English. However, note was added that such children were probably, and this is a quote, idiots who had been abandoned or had strayed from their families. So again, like language back then obviously has changed. Nowadays, if you call somebody an idiot, that's very offensive. But this kind of like taps into what you were talking about, Megan, where I'm wondering Mm -hmm. if there was some sort of cognitive disability that they were already aware of. And this is kind of like what they were talking about. Right. And that is the interesting thing is that even in 1792, people were saying, no, these are probably just like disabled children that were abandoned by their families. I will go into some of the more specifics as to why we think that in a little bit, but I just like to point out, yeah, because traditionally um, idiots would have typically been a term for somebody with a cognitive disability. Um, And yeah, so even back then they were throwing it out there, but that is a piece to feral children that every time I've, I have never heard that before researching for this episode. That's just kind of the not talked about part of this. Exactly. Exactly. So very interesting. Very early on we're hearing this. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was this conflation of feral nature and disability that was taken up on Jean-Marc Gaspard Attard in his project of civilizing one of the children um, from a famous case in Europe, Victor of Iveron. Um, he was a boy caught in 1800 in the forest near Lacouan. Mm-hmm. Um, Philippe Pinel, the foremost physician in France, dismissed Victor as a quote-unquote idiot, but Attard, the boy... But to Itard, the boy was a living artifact. Um, And what they were able to gather, essentially, was that human knowledge was constructed rather than inborn. Mm -hmm. So kind of pulling on the nature-nurture thing. Right. This is the what a lot of people think it's the ultimate study of nature versus nurture, is kids who are raised away from people. Yep. And the saddest. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So just to kind of get into neuroscience just a little bit, because it's interesting, at least to me. Um, So feral children exhibit the usual range of biological developmental potential, but fail to develop normal human communication skills, as, you know, we may have guessed. As a result from growing up in social isolation without proper models, you know, not really having examples of that. Skills are dependent upon continuous hearing, observation, mimicking, and reinforcement to develop properly. So, you know, we do this with babies. You know, we have them copy us and hear us and we talk to them. Even, you know, when you're pregnant, you're talking to your stomach and they're learning these things. Therefore, it is not surprising that feral children do not acquire these skills and rather that they may acquire those of their adoptive animal families during these critical socialization years. So this is what they're hearing all the time and they tend to mimic. Um, So this is due to the inherent plasticity of the nervous system in which many aspects of our sensory and motor systems are hardwired. Others, such as language, communication, things like that, 
are more dependent on postnatal experience and the mm-hmm. specific environment that infants are born into to finish development and acquire the specific skills and behaviors necessary to survive and compete in that environment. So like a simple way of thinking about that is that language and communication is more flexible and it's really based on the environment that you're around. Mm-hmm. Um, so depending on the age at which they are removed from human contact and the age at which they are retrieved, feral children may not ever be able to develop normal communication patterns because of the window in early childhood when the nervous system is primed for acquiring language and communication skills. So, you know, depending when they're found and, you know, just all of these different factors, um, they have maybe missed a developmental window, which can be Mm -hmm. really impactful. Yeah. Um, So to kind of get into that a little bit more specifically with neurodevelopment, Um, so this is about the impact of trauma and neglect in childhood. So when we think about feral children, they're absolutely traumatized children. And there's a great deal of neglect that's happening. Um, you know, if that wasn't obvious before, hopefully it is now. Um, so severely neglected children have been reported to show neurological abnormalities, including reduced brain size and enlarged ventricles, as well as a decreased metabolic activity in the orbital frontal gyrus. So, um, and in the infralimbic prefrontal cortex, amygdala, hippocampus, lateral temporal cortex, and in the brainstem. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times when we see people who have like behavioral issues, impulse control issues. We're really looking at that prefrontal cortex a lot, really looking at the amygdala. And what this is saying is like the brain is shrinking. Those those pieces of their brains are shrinking. Um, so childhood trauma can sensitize the stress response in the neural circuits with an associated risk of later mental health and attachment problems. So trauma particularly impacts the emotional circuits, damaging the links between the orbitofrontal cortex, anterior cingulate, and amygdala via the hypothalamus. So it reduces the volume of the prefrontal cortex, just like I was saying before, and it alters the balance of serotonin and dopamine in the orbitofrontal cortex and anterior cingulate. This has long-term effects by inducing long-term hyperactivity of the uh, cortisotrophin. Um, so cortisol, we know, is the stress hormone that's released. And if it's hyperactive, mm-hmm. that means there's an excess amount of cortisol that is being released, um, as well as alterations in other neurotransmitter systems. So mm-hmm. as I said, you know, increases stress responsiveness in adults. So most adults, you know, when we're in danger, it makes sense for our brains to function in this way and release yeah. cortisol and get us ready and primed to remove ourselves from a situation. But what this is suggesting is that for these kiddos, um, their window of tolerance or their ability to handle stress is much, much smaller. So mm-hmm. they are more um, likely to get into fight or flight much easier than the average person. Yeah is essentially what that means. So children's brains are most vulnerable to these stress effects up to the age of three, 
when they're developing the fastest. Mm -hmm. And if it is cumulative trauma, it has been associated with even greater adult emotional and behavioral regulation difficulties. Yep. So, there you have it. Yeah. So, I'm going to talk a little bit about the language acquisition piece, and then I'm going to go into my favorite part of spooky psychology, the controversy. You guys know I love the controversy of everything, because uh, a lot of times things are not as clear-cut as we're taught that they are. So, the language acquisition piece is probably the most intense part of the psychological study in feral children. People really want to figure out how our language acquisition works because language acquisition and the use of grammar is really different in humans and animals. So there's a lot of effort to try to study the difference. So there's the nature-nurture controversy, as there always is with everything. So the first approach is that our knowledge of language is innate. So the knowledge originates in human nature is already in the mind at birth. Noam Chomsky's language acquisition theory explains, since the infant period, the human brain develops a structure known as the language acquisition device, which enables children to pick up on the grammatical principles of the language and learn to speak as quickly as they do, right? That's the whole, like, we're born with it, we can. Done. The second approach with behaviorism is there's a language learning process as a result of children listening in the environment, being exposed to language. By having adults speak to them, infants discern patterns of the language gradually. Therefore, it's all about habit formation and is nature. Or nurture, not nature. Sorry, I'll edit that so I did it correctly. Um... You know, in developmental psychology, there's something called the critical period, or it's the stage of lifespan of a human, which the nervous system is so sensitive to certain environmental stimuli. So ling some, the linguist Eric Lenerberg suggests that this period lasts until about 12 years old, and that after 12, you cannot acquire language in a fully functional manner. Now, what we do know is that it's harder to learn languages as an adult, but it's not impossible. But we don't know how that relates to learning language for the first time right. past the age of 12. Like, even in, like, um, like stroke victims or whatever, mm -hmm. it's not like they're learning for the first time. So, yeah, right. it's interesting. I, and as we're kind of talking about this, I wonder, like, how many um, speech-language pathologists we have that listen, like, was... Feral children something that you guys talked about a lot? Mm-hmm. I'm very curious about that. Yeah, Write we us. would love to hear that. Please let us know. Um, so, yeah, the thing is, you know, Noam Chomsky says that the usage of grammar is what separates human and animal communication. Um, you know, thinking that we have the language acquisition device and once exposed to language, it enables children to learn a language. However... You know, if the sounds children are exposed to aren't human, what does that actually mean? So other people are saying animals have their own communication systems like call alarm, like alarm calls, dances, yet they're limited. There's not a lot of rules of syntax. There's not a lot going on. There's It's a very different type of language than human language. And, you know, in feral children founding, found with other species, other questions are raised, yet there's absolutely no certainty which theory is technically 
correct, children that were, quote, adopted by animals acquire some behavior, meaning that environment does play a significant role. But with rehabilitation, they do typically still learn some English there or whatever language, like some human language. Thus, they must have a genetic feature that allows them to do so. Now the controversy. So Ooh, the Lauren, controversy. <laughs> Lauren mentioned the famous case of Wild Peter, mm-hmm. right? One of the more famous uh, children, right? So uh, on, uh, you know, July twenty seventh, seventeen twenty four, Wild Peter was captioned near the German town of Hamelin. He appeared to be about twelve years old. He could not speak, ate only vegetables and grass, and sucked the juice out of green stalks and rejected bread. Uh, so, in February of 1726, King George I of England sent for him. People became a celebrated case, a very influential, the, um, the French political philosopher of Jean-Jacques Rousseau said that he was an example of the natural man, one untainted by modern life or learning. Right? However, and this is the thing that I would like to point out, I think needs to cause doubt in any case of feral children is one of the biggest things that they don't understand that is like the key point of feral children is their inability to speak right they can't communicate therefore what's actually happening is some adult is finding a child in the wild and assuming that they've lived there their entire life Right, Right? which is a huge assumption. It's a huge assumption. They can't confirm anything. And in the case of Wild Peter, uh, there are questions because a German naturalist and scholar, uh, so some historians were actually looking through the earliest documents on Wild Peter and descriptions, and basically found in the early description of him in the original source material, he wore a rag around his neck and had tan lines suggesting that he had been wearing pants. All right. (laughs) Which indicates, right, like wearing a scarf around your neck and wearing clothing both indicated that he lived in a society and did not, like, fairly recently until he was captured. So even then, it's like the question if they're indicating, and as much as, you know, early sources doing the description where it's just like, ah, he was wearing pants, like, well, if he was raised by, you know, wolves or dogs or monkeys or lived in the wild his entire life, he would not have had access to pants. Like, exactly. And so it's even like that stuff where people get through it. But I mean, we're taking like a couple sources in the 1700s where people are like, he's totally the wild boy and assuming that's accurate. And sometimes the evidence doesn't add up. There was another one. Amala and Kamala, who were uh, girls in discovered in the 1920s by a priest named J.A.L. Singh, who um, in Bengal, India, who were raised by wolves. They discovered two young girls. One was 18 months old. The other was eight. He claimed the girls, who he named Amala and Kamala, preferred raw meat, walked on all fours, and would howl at the moon like wolves. He tried to get them to speak and walk upright. Uh, several books were written about their mysterious case, right? However, a lot of them have been revered as hoaxes, and in Amala and Kamala, later research concluded that they most likely did exist, 
it, they had not been raised by wolves, but instead suffered from developmental and birth defects. And uh. the only source that we have is Singh's diary. That's it. There is absolutely no other sources indicating every single thing that he said. And again, that's where it gets tricky with historical sources, is right. Think about how much fake news is relevant today when we can actually fact check. If you're taking the story of these two girls who were taken by who, like, one guy's diary says that he found these girls who were totally, absolutely taken by wolves. Like, yes, they were definitely raised by wolves, but there's absolutely no corroboration that any of this happened. We don't know, right? Like, it's generally accepted that he faked or exaggerated his interactions with the children. And, you know, at the same time, children walking on all fours... It's not actually that weird. Like, right, right. That, that's that's something that kids do, and especially kids who have some level of disability who may not be able to walk upright. It would not be that weird for older children to be continuing to crawl or have a crawl walk fusion. Um, so it is again, you know, with feral children before they are discovered, we really don't know anything about them. Just that we found them. Uh, Lauren, had you heard about the Mowgli, the Mowgli girl in India? I have. You have. So that's an interesting one. It's a more recent case. She was an eight-year-old girl found near monkeys near a road in a nature sanctuary in India. And what's interesting is she was not found with the monkeys. She was found next to a road and some monkeys were nearby. Yeah. And she was... Um, you know, she attacked, she was very uncomfortable around people. She did attack them. Um, she was like very hostile towards human beings. And so the first two police officers that found her said in the newspaper that she was definitely raised by monkeys and had never been around people before. And that's why she was acting like that, right? So we're taking two police officers who are like, yeah, this is a monkey child. And. Both the forestry officer, so the officer who was actually in charge of the nature sanctuary where she was found, and the medical examiner who actually looked at her, stated that she clearly had an existing cognitive delay and was most likely abandoned by her family due to her disability and left near a road where she would be quickly found. The examiner said she may have been outside for a couple days, but that was it, right? And... This is the tricky thing, is the media ran with what the first two people said. Of course. Because, I mean, that's what media does. Right, and ignored the actual medical examiner. And somebody doing a medical exam would be able to see clear indications of somebody living outdoors their entire life. Um, You know, there are certain medical things that would not be done. There would be injuries. There would be some evidence, right? You can typically tell, you know, if somebody has been outside for a year versus somebody's been outside for a couple days. There's a lot of different things, right? So even the medical examiner said that she was just a disabled child. And he's also stated that male children were preferred and that she most likely was abandoned due to her disability. Got it. Terrible. Yeah. So... Lauren, why don't you tell your story, and then I will once again talk more about this disability thing, because guys, trust me, I am not done here. We are never done. Nope. 
Okay. Okay. Oh yeah, that's pretty small. Yep. <laughs> well, uh, the story I'm gonna tell is about Oksana Malaya. Um, so in 1994, there was an eight-year-old girl who was found in Ukraine. Um, so she was crawling on all fours, barking, roaming with a pack of wild dogs. Um, and the girl was living in the woods near her childhood home. And mm-hmm. someone noticed her and called the police, thankfully. Yeah. So as the story goes, Oksana was abandoned by her reportedly alcoholic father, um, and when she was a toddler so her family had left her outside one night and she instinctively crawled to the thing that could provide her warmth which was the dog kennel Mm -hmm. her parents hardly noticed that she was missing she lived in the dog kennel eating what scraps they had left and though she must have seen humans at a distance and seemed to occasionally have entered her old family house like a stray they were no longer her species. All meaningful life was contained in the kennel. So that kind of became the norm for her. Mm-hmm. Um, so then what happened was she was absorbed into a pack of wild dogs who ended up frequenting their backyard. In 2006, TV producers at Channel 4 and in the UK became interested in her story and got funding to visit her in Odessa. They wanted an expert perspective on her mental state, so they recruited a British child psychologist named Lynn Fry from a media list. Mm-hmm. So when Fry met Malaya, she was able to administer a couple of simple quizzes designed to evaluate her level of cognitive development. And though Fry admits that her experiments didn't conform to the rigor of scientific method, we were there to make a television program was an actual quote from Fry. Ah, okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, at least, at least we're being honest. Yep. I appreciate <laughs> that. Yeah. It was all very basic, nothing thorough. She did uncover a few surprising findings. So she gave Malaya something called the Weschler test. And this is like a very common thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an intelligent test similar to IQ testing. The Weschler scale assigns an intelligence age to a person based on how well they do at certain tasks like drawing or simple math. So uh, this is a quote from Fry. She said, she was 23 when I saw her, and according to the Weschler test, she could draw at the level of a five or six year old. Mm-hmm. So she gave Malaya more small challenges to see how she dealt with language as a communication tool because you know everybody's very interested in that according to fry many feral children through history have developed the ability to imitate some words but haven't figured out grammar or syntax i wanted to see what her prepositions were like said fry so i got the interpreter to say things like put the ducks behind the cow or the dog is under the table and according to Fry, Malaya had no trouble understanding those, which was surprising to her. And what Fry was most impressed by, um, that reportedly feral children had trouble with in the past, is, and this is a direct quote from Fry, I asked her to look in the mirror and I asked if she could identify herself. She could, and in fact, she thought it was bizarre that I even asked. Mm-hmm. 
So, you know, some theories evolved um, that baby Oksana probably absorbed something from being around adults who talked and interacted since she didn't join the dog pack until she was three or four. Mm-hmm. By the time the dogs found her, she was old enough to have picked up on building blocks of language. Today, Malaya lives in an adult therapeutic community um, in a farm in Odessa, Ukraine, where she milks cows, helps with chores, um, and developmentally, Fry says Malaya, Malaya has a cognitive ability of a five or six year old and doesn't really see it progressing much further. Um, so, I mean, this is a, a really interesting story because we're able to identify when, you know, the extreme neglect of letting your kid live in a dog kennel started occurring. Um, it happened at three or four. So, mm-hmm. you know, the building blocks of language were there. Um, but also it's it's just, you know, there's certain pieces about it that are funny where, like, even, like, the psychologist that they pulled in, like, these aren't, like you know they're not in a lab <laughs> like this it, it's not like the testing that you would like normally do mm-hmm. with children um so it's it's just really interesting and i mean in this particular story it does sound like the family um had like addiction perhaps mental health issues that mm-hmm. led to their decision to uh, i guess like allow her to live outside um right. so i'm not sure about if if she had any cognitive disabilities um but it is interesting just uh that she was able to like recognize herself in the mirror Mm -hmm. and has that sense of self and you know just different pieces of it are really interesting well and what i would be curious about with this is again if they're saying the parents were so deep in their addiction that they didn't notice their children went missing then how do they actually know that she was where they're like you know, even in the way that they're, you know, writing this, it's like she must have seen humans at a distance and maybe did this, but all meaningful life was in the kennel. Like, how do you know that if she can't communicate with you? Like, right. I think that's the thing that you see is you see these descriptive assumptions. And it's like if her parents didn't notice and she was missing, then whose report do we have that that's exactly when she went missing? Exactly. Are you know, they're assuming like, ah, she was left outside and she crawled there for warmth. It's like, or did her parents just put her in the dog kennel and then say that she must have gone there, like, to make themselves look better? I think this is the thing, is if you look at it through a more critical lens, it's like, maybe, but also, like, how do we know exactly when this happened if the child isn't able to communicate that information? There's a lot of assumptions. Absolutely. And, uh, you know... This, people tend to like editorialize like especially mm-hmm. like if they aren't if their background isn't in like any sort of like science or research methodology and stuff like that and you know to actually do like a proper like IQ test or test you know different certain things you know it ha- there's like procedures that you have to follow you can't just mm-hmm casually like ask questions like that that's not really how that works no no there's a pretty intense procedure have you done um did you do any of the iq tests for the phd students yes i think i did yeah 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 and i mean how long was yours a couple hours a couple hours yeah and you have to follow very standard Mm -hmm. procedure 
and if you don't it gets thrown out like it's not like if you mess it up and you mess up the way that it's done you can't use it as evidence or reliable data yeah it's pretty complicated to do them i actually because i i did one as well so what we're talking about is um we were both in psychology labs and the phd students in america you have to have a doctorate to be able to do iq testing and psychological testing and so a lot of the doctoral students would get volun- undergrad volunteers to administer the tests to just to practice it. Um, so we both sat for that with various grad students. And I mean, it's an intense process. It takes a long time. It's very structured. It's very rigorous. So doing these kind of on-the-fly tests are not accurate. This is this yeah. is for the media. This is not for reality. So right. just this is for that TV show that she had mentioned. Right. I think the biggest thing is to just when you're reading these stories, like just read them with a grain of salt and realize how much of this is editorializing. Because if this child can't communicate and their parents were so deep in their addictions that they just didn't know that their toddler went missing, then we don't really have any reliable narrator as to the specifics about what happened. We can make assumptions, but the biggest thing is even hearing about some of the historical where it's like, they were raised by wolves for this amount of time, and these are the things that the wolves taught them, and it's like, The only way that you could have known that is if you were watching the child be raised by wolves and just didn't do anything about it, which would be very bad. Very problematic. So much of this, again, it's, I think we've all heard these stories in psych classes and other things, and it sounds really interesting, but like once you actually consider if children can't communicate then how do we actually know what happened other than you found a kid in the woods you really start to realize that a lot of this information is a lot more questionable even with some of the modern stories it's more questionable than we're being told it is yes that was really interesting lauren it was interesting tell us your story Uh, so I am going to talk about the classic one that we have all heard about in our Psych 101 classes, Miss Jeannie Wiley. And, um, I learned a lot of new shit about Jeannie, I'm not gonna lie, guys. So, we'll go over the basics. On November 4th of 1970 in Los Angeles, California, A social worker discovered the 13-year-old girl, Jeannie, after her mother sought out services for her own health. Right? I think we all heard that, right? A social worker came to help the mom with domestic violence-related issues and found Jeannie. Now, Jeannie was kept in a small room and had spent almost her entire life in the room, usually tied to a potty chair. Um, Now, what I find interesting is, do you know where they got the name Jeannie from? No. So, uh, Jeannie is not her real name, um, because her identity is to be protected, but Susan Curtis explained in the the name in the 1997 Nova documentary titled Secrets of the Wild Child 
The case name is Genie. This is not the person's real name. But when we think about what a genie is, a genie is a creature that comes out of a bottle or whatever, but emerges into human society past childhood. We assume that it really isn't a creature that had a human childhood. So they called oh. her Genie because she was emerging from her room into human society. I didn't know that. That was kind of interesting. Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> so. Jeannie's life prior to her discovery had been utter deprivation. She spent most of her days tied naked to her potty chair, only able to move her hands and feet. When she made noise, her father would beat her. Her father, mother, and older brother rarely spoke to her, and when her father did interact with her, it was to bark and to growl. Uh, Both of her parents were charged with abuse, but... Jeannie's father committed suicide the day before he was due to appear in court, leaving a note stating, the world will never understand. Very sus. Very sus, right? And so, that's a bit about it. So, this, in this case, again, there were court cases. That's how we know what happened here, right? People did have to testify about this. So, with Jeannie... Specifically, they were very interested in the language acquisition debate. So the National Institute of Mental Health provided funding for scientific research on Jeannie's case. Psychologist David Riggler was part of the, quote, Jeannie team. He explained, I think everybody who came in contact with her was attracted to her. She had a quality of somehow connecting with people, which developed more and more, but was present really from the start. She had a way of reaching out without saying anything, but somehow just by the kind look in her eyes, people wanted to do things for her. So people were pretty fascinated with her from the get-go here. That is, um, her research team, all her rehabilitation team also included graduate student Susan Curtis, the one who explained the name in the documentary, and psychologist James Kent. When she arrived, she weighed 59 pounds. She had a, she was 13. Oh my god. 59 pounds is a very low amount. Yeah. Um, for that age. Um, particularly since I believe she was kind of tall. Um, she had a strange bunny walk. She was incontinent, so she had no control over her um, bowels or her bladder. She was unable to chew or straighten her arms and legs, often spat, and only recognized her name and the word sorry. Um, Wow. Kent, the psychologist, in a... These are direct quotes, which are really interesting. Uh, After assessing her emotional and cognitive abilities, Kent described her as the most profoundly damaged child I have ever seen. Jeannie's life is a wasteland. Okay, to put it lightly. Just to put it lightly, right? Um, She was unable to use language, made it difficult to assess her mental abilities, but on test she scored about the level of a one-year-old. She made rapid progression in specific areas, learned how to use the toilet and dress herself. Over the next few months, she began to experience more developmental progress, but remained really poor in areas such as language... You know, she began adding new words to her vocabulary, started by learning single words, and eventually began putting two words together in the way that very young children do. So Curtis thought that Jeannie would be fully capable of acquiring language. After a year of treatment, she started putting three words together occasionally. 
in children going through normal development. So typically they'll learn single words, they'll go to double words, and after they get triple words, they have a language explosion, right? I recently got to see this happen with one of my nieces, who is two, and she went from, like, you know, dog go there to suddenly she was like, I want the strawberries. Like, all of a sudden (laughs) she can explain. It's adorable, right? She can explain it herself. She'll just be like, I want to go there. And you're like, you cannot go there. And she'll, like, get this grumpy face and be like, I want to go there. Like, right? She can, like, express herself so well. It's amazing, right? As soon as you see, a lot of us have seen the language explosion in children. And that's when you really have to be careful with what you say because they will pick up on literally anything you say. So if you swear near them, they will start swearing all the time. Um, So if you don't want them to do that, you have to be careful, right? But... Jeannie never had a language explosion. She never got past three words at a time and was really unable to apply grammatical rules and use language in a meaningful way. Um, So not only did she miss the critical period for learning language, but she was horrifically abused. She was malnourished and deprived of cognitive stimulation for most of her childhood. Kind of her father just into the history of how this happened. Um, her father, Clark, hated children. It's kind of not off to a great start here. And quickly <laughs> tired... Yeah, he tired of hearing her cries, um, so he threw her in the basement with nothing but a wire cage and a potty chair with a homemade strapping device. Uh, she was in her crib for most of it, which is why she couldn't straighten out her arms and legs, because she was kind of, like, really kept in there. And also... Um, or strapped to the potty chair, or in a crib with her arms and legs immobilized. She was malnourished. Her isolation made a lot of things impossible. Her mother, Irene, was almost blind from cataracts, and her brother, John, also suffered an abuse. Now, here is the one thing that I did not learn about Jeannie in any case I had. As as an infant, a pediatrician had identified her as having a mental delay and being cognitively disabled. Okay. Her father believed her to be disabled and kept using that as an excuse from keeping her from her family and the world. And in all the times I have learned about Jeannie, I have never once learned that she had been diagnosed with a mental delay. Right. Before she was isolated. Mm-hmm. So researchers were left to wonder if she had suffered from cognitive deficits from the abuse or if she was born with it. You know, Jay Shirley was a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at the University of Oklahoma. He was a specialist in social isolation. He took an interest in Jeannie's case. He visited her three days a week and conducted a sleep study to see if she was autistic, mentally challenged, or had sustained any brain damage during the time she was isolated. Apparently, there's some specific sleep cycle things that you can figure out. Her sleep study concluded that she did not have autism, had high levels of emotional disturbance. That makes sense. Um, Right. Obviously, she's emotionally disturbed. She was raised isolated. That... She was horrifically abused. That tracks, okay? His sleep study also showed a significantly reduced amount of REM sleep and a large number of sleep spindles. He concluded that based on the unusual amount of sleep spindles, she had been cognitively disabled since birth. And some of the scientists 
argued that this wasn't true due to the substantial progress she was making in expressing herself. Susan Curtis argued that even though she had serious emotional issues, she could not have been delayed. She pointed out that Jeannie made a year's developmental progress for every calendar year after her rescue, which would not be expected if her condition was congenital. That being said, she they're saying she made a year's progress for every calendar year after her rescue, except they're also indicating that her development stopped at a certain point, right? And this right. is where it gets complicated. Curtis said some aspects of language that Jeannie acquired were uncharacteristic of cognitively disabled individuals. The problem I have here is that cognitive disability is a spectrum, and I've worked in special needs schools, I've seen it presented in a large variety of ways, and the problem is, is that she had a diagnosis, she has evidence it could go other way, but that is the biggest thing, I think, with these feral children, is you cannot tell if they were delayed before they were abandoned, or if it was a result of deprivation. There's no way of knowing that, and I think the answer for a lot of these people might be both, right? It could very well be that they had an existing cognitive issue and also were abandoned that led to right. further issues. Right. You know, so in 1974, all funding was withdrawn due to lack of scientific findings. And also Susan Curtis, the grad student who was saying she couldn't have been disabled, is a linguist. Um, well, she was studying the language part. She found that while Jeannie could use words, she could not produce grammar. She could not arrange them in a meaningful way. Um, other results were disorganized, largely anecdotal, without funds to continue that she was removed from Riegler's care. In 1975, she returned to live in, with her birth mother. While her mother found the task too difficult, she was moved to a series of foster homes where there was a lot more abuse. Her situation worsened after a lot of time in foster homes. She returned to the children's hospital and all progress that she had during her first stay was pretty much undone. She was afraid to open her mouth and regressed back into total silence. Oh, poor thing. Yeah. Her birth mother then sued the children's hospital and the research team, charging them with excessive testing. The lawsuit was settled. Did the research interfere with the girl's therapeutic treatment? And I think the thing to remember here is that all of the people that were there to help her and treat her were researchers. She didn't have any help outside of the research being done. She ended up living with a lot of the researchers during this. Oh, that's weird. Right? And that's the thing, is that all of the people who were caretaking and attempting to help her were also profiting off of the research they were doing there, which is a conflict of interest. This is where we're getting into the unethical studies of the 1970s. Um, you know, Jay Shirley, who had thought that she was cognitively disabled based on sleep studies, the psychiatrist visited her on her 27th and 29th birthdays and characterized her as largely silent, depressed, and chronically institutionalized. Um, you know, they even say... And, some... and that's, like, the thing, okay? So, like, mm -hmm. obviously she was, like, in this really bad situation, like, her basement, like, not mm -hmm. socialized. When you're institutionalized, you are, again, in an environment that you're not socialized. Yep. So she ended like, up basically 
in a hospital, you know, not being tied to things, hopefully, but like, right, like still not abused, isolated. but right, but still isolated. And even in the documentary, here's just a quote from the documentary that I thought was really good. What do we take away from this really sad story? Look, there's an ethical dilemma in this kind of research. If you want to do rigorous science, then Jeannie's interests are going to come second some of the time. If you only care about helping Jeannie, then you wouldn't do a lot of scientific research. So what are you going to do? To make matters worse, the two roles, scientist and therapist, were combined in one person in her case. So I think future generations are going to study Jeannie's case, not only for what it can teach us about human development, but also what it can teach us about the rewards and risks of conducting the forbidden experiment. And that's, that's, the, that's the thing. And you can't prove how much of this was the abuse and how much of this was an existing disability. And this is kind of the thing that I really wanted to point out is that people act like this is so clear cut. They're like, it was a child who was abused. And then she was like this, but you can't ignore the fact that she had a previous diagnosis, right? I don't know what they were looking at, but in every single case of feral children that have been done, you cannot prove if they had a cognitive delay at the beginning or if it was only developed after that. So it is unclear how much of all of these symptoms, what's an existing disability, what is the impact of being raised like this. Were they really raised by wolves or were they abandoned near some wolves the day before they were found? There's too much unknown right. for this to be. And the a, only way to ever know something like that would be to do like a very unethical study, which would right. never happen. Right. And, you know, just to kind of go in a bit, um, some background on Jeannie's father because I also hadn't learned this, and I just think this is extremely relevant. Uh, Jeannie's father grew up in a combination of foster homes and brothels his mother was working in. So he was exposed to some things that a child should not be exposed to. Uh, he worked as a machinist in L.A. during and after the Second World War. He married Irene, a Dust Bowl migrant 20 years younger than him. He was a controlling man who hated noise and did not want children. Uh, their first child, a baby girl, died after being left in their garage overnight. So there's some history here. The second died from a birth complication. The third child, a boy named John, survived, followed five years later by the girl who would become known as Jeannie. So there was a strong history of abuse already happening there here. There it is, yeah. Um... And, you know, mysteriously, uh, so like I said, you know, raised in, I found one source, I've, I've heard he was both raised in foster homes and in brothels with his mother, but uh, the abuse started um, after a drunk driver killed his mother. To Jeannie, he unraveled into anger and paranoia, started beating John, and locked his 20-month-old daughter in a bedroom, isolated and unable to move. So Okay, so someone who needed a lot of mental health support. Yeah, like a whole lot. This does connect to, um... Yeah, a lot, a lot of things, a lot of things, you know, you're kind of seeing the childhood trauma, um, especially with his... The first child who was um, locked in the garage overnight and died was also a female. So 
Uh, his son was the least abused, his daughters were the most abused, and he had some mom feelings. So, if you're lo- comparing this to our serial killers or murderers episodes, there are some consistencies. I'm not saying he was a serial killer, right? But the psychology in people some, who are like, willing misogyny to... misogyny and... Right. Yeah. Um, the psychology of people who are willing to abuse and exploit others. You know, there are some things that track. And... You know, just as, like, a final point, right? Because, again, I think a lot of this is more disability-focused than I initially thought it was. And I'm just going to point out, here's from a book on people with disabilities, a list of things that were considered appropriate and socially fair things to do to disabled children in the past. I'm just going to read this list. Um, Killing or abandoning them in the woods in ancient Greece being kept as gestures for nobility in Roman Empire courts, experienced acts of infanticide during the Renaissance, drowned and burned during the Spanish Inquisition. In 1601, Queen Elizabeth's government divided the poor into three groups. The disabled poor were placed in the group labeled helpless poor, kept in cellars in correctional institutions in early colonial America if family support was not available. People then paid admission to gawk at the oddities, dehumanization in orphanages and asylums in 19th century Europe, primary care given by the family at home in the early history of the United States instead of the children being allowed in public. So keeping the kids in one room to never interact with other people was a widely acceptable thing to do with your cognitively disabled child. Yeah. You sometimes see that in, like, horror movies. Mm-hmm. Where it's, like, they're in, like, a special, like, room or whatever. I don't know. Yep. It's homeschooled, excluded from community activities. There in, Mount- in Massachusetts in 1848, there was the Institution for Idiots. Uh, in U.S. institutions, disabled people were shackled to their beds because there was an insufficient number of staff members to care for residents. Uh, let's see, beginning in 1907, uh, in the United States, cognitively disabled people were involuntarily sterilized to present the passing of, quote, inferior traits. Is considered as eugenicist as defective in interference with the process of natural selection. In Nazi Germany, they were gassed, drugged, bloodlet, and euthanized in concentration camps. They were institutionalized regardless of needs. Um, for example, people with cerebral palsy being considered cognitively disabled and institutionalized, even though a lot of people with cerebral palsy just need mobility aids. Housed in separate institutions throughout the world, not allowed to attend schools. Aversion techniques were used. Seclusion policies were applied, so secluding them from people, using restraints. Abuse is prevalent in cognitively disabled individuals, victimized with inhumane treatments, lives devalued, stigmatized as criminals, viewed as sickly, and not really treated. So the point that I'm making here is there is a strong history for society just abandoning or isolating like people with cognitive disabilities. Um, I just wanted to point that out because I think some of us are very nice and like to think that most people wouldn't do this, but we have a strong history of those being the choices that families are making. So we do need to consider that it is at least plausible that a lot of these quote feral kids throughout history have just been disabled individuals who were abandoned you know, in Jeannie's case, who were isolated because they were, quote, too much trouble to raise. And, I mean, even her dad admitted that he thought she was mentally disabled and that's why he did it. 
There's just a lot of unknowns as it pertains to, you know, feral children, because if they can't explain to you what happened, then you don't, and no one else is going to, then you really don't have the evidence of what happened. Exactly. So, thanks, thanks for joining me on that bummer, everyone. Yeah, I mean, it's sad, but it's important, and it's, like you said, I I don't think it's an angle that's talked about commonly Mm -hmm. when talk, you know, when psychology classes like talking about feral children and the psychology of that um so i mean the reality of it is we don't know a whole lot still we don't and Mm -hmm. i guess the thing is you know i have the perspective of so many things that you're reading is um where they're like they're wild children they must have been raised by animals because they you know bite people and i worked in a special needs school for for summers in a summer school and you know we were working with kids with cognitive delays who lived with their families who were being well taken care of and who bit people a lot that's not like an uncommon behavior some of the like strange movements aggression and different things are not uncommon in certain other disorders so i think it's interesting of that perspective of how much was like they're an animal and not just like they're a human being who has a differently developing brain that can impact their behavior quite a bit and they need compassion and understanding not being abandoned in the woods that's exactly right and you know nowadays um at least in america like there are more resources for families who need extra support with that because Mm -hmm. i mean it's hard it's hard especially if you don't know what you're doing you know yeah it's it's a complicated thing but It's just got a lot sadder, and honestly, in some of the research with feral children has always seemed a bit strange to me, and I kind of think, like, reading that, like, it's like, oh, that actually makes a lot of sense. Definitely. I I think there's just a lot of, like, you know, the media influencing us, um, it being part of, like, mythology, and that sounding, like, magical, and, like, fascinating, and whatever. Mm. Yeah. Definitely. So thanks for bearing with us on this super, super depressing episode of Spooky Psychology with Megan and Lauren. Uh, Now, we'll have a very special good shit going on in the world. Lauren, would you like to tell us all what your good shit is? Yes, I would. Um, So the good shit that I've been kind of keeping from you guys um, until I felt comfortable sharing is that I am having a baby. Yay! Yes! Um, So I just have uh, a couple more months now, and he will be here, and I'm very excited about it. Um, So yeah, so naturally, um, (laughs) with pregnancy and just, you know, some medical complications, everything that's involved, um, it became really hard to produce content for you guys (laughs) um so that's why we really uh toned it down um and moved to the once a month Mm -hmm. and you know for the period um that you know i have my baby and you know i'm on maternity leave um you know that'll be a little different too and you know megan and i have talked about like what that might look like you know megan might have some episode she does on her own or you might just you know take a longer break um but yeah i wanted to share that exciting news with you guys 
Yeah, it has been so hard to, like, keep that on the down low this mm-hmm. whole time. So thanks for being patient. Um, I'm sure yes. some of you... Some of you may have guessed that one of us was pregnant with the slowdown. <laughs> it's Lauren. It is me. I am and, the one. Yeah. And so, again, we don't know what Lauren's maternity leave is going to look like. But, you know, maternity leaves are terrible in the United States. So we're going to give Lauren a break from the podcast <laughs> for as long as she wants. Um, yeah. So I will, whenever she does give birth i'm gonna record something to just let you guys know okay Um, baby's okay right just Mm kind of give a quick update that the baby's here that we're on maternity leave for lauren right now and that we're not sure what's gonna happen because i think the plan is from what lauren and i talk we're just really gonna play it by ear Mm -hmm. we're not you know we're not gonna be able to tell you exactly what's gonna happen because of course lauren has never had a baby before so she doesn't know how the adjustment's gonna be that is correct (laughs) we're we're gonna let her take however much time she needs to get settled and do what she can because as much as we love you guys you know i'm pretty sure lauren's gonna love her baby a little bit more than you and she'll need the time for So, yeah, and I just, you know, I, I kind of mentioned this before and I won't get too much into it, but um, just like I, I have uh, certain like medical things that I have to make sure I take care of and, um, you know, I will be fine, baby will be fine, um, you know, I'm 30 weeks, so we've gotten past a lot of really important um, milestones in the pregnancy, so now he's just cooking, so um you know, we're definitely going to focus on self-care, you know, physically for me and just, you know, making sure he's healthy and okay too. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm very happy for you. Yeah. I'm very happy. Very excited. I may have all of your baby gifts in this room with me, but you can't see them until you retire. So I did did a lot of baby shopping um, because I am obsessed with babies i love them so much and baby clothes are so cute i know we just had another friend give birth pretty recently so we've just been like baby shopping we've been going baby shopping lately which is really fun so it's it's nice i think it'll be it'll be good like i said i i will announce however much information lauren wants me to announce about the baby once he's here and just let you guys know that everything's okay because of course um for those of you who have had babies you know that we can't give you an exact date of when we'll stop doing this because babies come when they want to and that's right we can't i really have truly no idea like sometime in september possibly late august like right no idea uh hopefully we'll drop one more episode in august but there's no guarantee at this point this might be the last one for a while but again i will record and release a baby update if I'm able to do any episodes on my own, I'm not against that. But also, since I'm doing some therapy coverage for Lauren's maternity uh, mm. maternity leave at our actual job, I don't know how busy I'm going to be either, quite frankly. So mm. we're going to have to play it by ear for both of us. That so. is correct. Um, so yeah, so that was, that was a good chat. Megan, do you have any good shit you want to share? It's pretty good shit. Um, I mean, nothing like on that level of good shit. Uh, my life is not that exciting right now. But I think um, I, I do. I do have a lot of good shit. Um, 
going on. This is completely random good shit, but it was so fun. I ended up having a conversation with my husband's three oldest nephews, who are all teenage boys, uh, about serial killers. They just, like, randomly at a family party are like, Auntie Meg, who is your favorite serial killer? And I'm like, I have been waiting my entire life for this conversation. Thank you for asking me. (laughs) So we talked about it for, like, a good 40 minutes. Maybe I might be exaggerating. I don't know. It was a long conversation, but it was great. And I felt like I got to be the exact positive role model that I've always wanted to be. The ant that we always want to be, yeah. The ant just talking about cause. So that was fun. I think it's interesting to hear about um, some of these. And then my nephew ended up in a situation where he was talking to some people he didn't know well about podcasts and then found out one of the guys was, like, a big fan of ours and he's texting my husband about it, like, wait, what's our podcast again? Because this guy's a huge fan. So it is kind of interesting, I think, just, like, getting to, I mean, that reinforcement that people are actually listening and that our rankings are increasing, even though we've really slowed down with Lauren's pregnancy is surprising. Neither of us was expecting it to get, like, bigger during that. So that's really good shit, too, just that you guys are still here supporting us. So thank you. Yeah, because, I mean, truly, we, we, like, forget, like, because obviously, like, Like, I'm recording, like, in my house and talking to Megan, like, kind of having conversations that I would have with her anyway, you know? So it's, like, very easy for us to forget, like, oh, people are, like, listening and enjoying this. (laughs) So we appreciate your feedback. So thanks, guys. It's great to have you here. Nice. And I think that's all I got. Yeah. Well, thank you guys for... Um, staying spooky and thanks guys we appreciate you we do bye bye